0: Okay, as I see it, there's three reasons why Mars should be the goal of our space program. And in short, it's because Mars is where the science is, it's where the challenge is, and it's where the future is.
1: The preceding comments were made by Robert Zubrin, founder of the Mars Society and a major advocate for the human exploration of Mars. The remarks were delivered on July 10, 2014, during a director's colloquium at the NASA Ames Research Center. The title of the colloquium was Mars Direct, Humans to the Red Planet Within a Decade, during which Zubrin summarized his arguments made in his book, The Case for Mars, The Plan to Settle the Red Planet and Why We Must. Such proposals for human missions to Mars go back decades, and as of the mid-2000s, NASA has been actively planning on sending its astronauts there by the 2030s, They've since been joined by the Chinese space program, which recently indicated that they too hope to send astronauts to the red planet by the early 2030s. This presents a number of challenges, not the least of which have to do with astronaut health and safety. There are also the technological hurdles that need to be overcome, the logistical issues that need to be addressed, and all the while there's the question of what are we doing about the moon in the meantime? I'm Matt Williams, and this is Stories from Space. In his book Cosmos, released in 1980, Carl Sagan famously said that Mars has become a kind of mythic arena onto which we have projected our earthly hopes and fears. Ironically enough, Mars occupied this role long before the age of space exploration. For as long as human beings have existed and looked up at the night sky, Mars has fired our imaginations, influenced our cosmological models, and our perception of the universe. It's also played a major role in the creation of modern astronomical systems. and That is still the case today. Welcome back to Stories from Space, I'm your host Matt Williams, and today I wanted to talk to you about the current proposed missions to Mars, and to have a look at their historical roots. Because, like everything having to do with uh, spaceflight today, the the ideas, the proposals, the mission architecture, everything about it, uh, it goes back, at the very least, uh, several decades to the early space age there in the late 1950s, early 60s. If not that, then centuries even. Now, in terms of what NASA and the Chinese space program are planning right now. What they're hoping to do is to commence sending crewed missions to Mars every 26 months, starting in 2033. So, that would effectively mean that um, missions would launch 2033, 2035, 2037, and uh, almost every two years, uh, right on up into the 2040s. And the long-term aim is to establish a reusable habitat on the surface of Mars that will facilitate regular missions there by um nasa astronauts international astronauts and also uh, taikonauts that's the chinese uh, term for it that they'll be able to uh, pick up where all the robotic missions we've sent there over the years left off and hopefully find evidence of past life or possibly even current life and as i said though the um the inspiration for all this and the shoulders that these plans are standing on, there they uh, they go back to the early space age, and the first known recorded example of a of a mission to Mars, of a crude mission architecture to Mars, was actually uh, published in 1952, and it was called the Mars Project. And this was written by famed rocket scientist Werner von Braun, who uh, had originally been working for the Nazis during World War II, and helped develop the V-2 rockets, and then had been uh, recruited to help NASA during the space race as part of Operation Paperclip. And yes, he wrote a detailed treatise about uh, a possible mission to Mars even before he was working with NASA, and uh, it uh, it was inspired in large part by the U.S. Navy's Antarctic expedition called Operation High Jump, which they did in '46 uh, and '47. He drew some inspiration from this this big uh, this expedition to remote locations on Earth there, which were very hostile environmentally, very cold, very dry, and and which required a great deal of planning and logistics and supplies. So he used that same idea and he came up with a plan for a flotilla of spacecraft that would be assembled in low Earth orbit by reusable shuttles, and 10 spacecraft in total, 7 that would be carrying crew and 3 that would be carrying cargo, and it would have a crew of 70. And the way he figured it, this would be ready to go by 1965, Uh, it would then launch to Mars, The entire journey would take about 3 years and would result in the creation of a a base camp around the equatorial region. And it was incredibly detailed, because not only did he plot out how exactly uh, these massive ships and uh, the winged spacecraft they'd bring along and surface uh, vehicles, not only did he plot out how all these would work and land and find their way to uh, the selected base campsite and build a, a base, um, and get home too. He also calculated the size and weight of each ship, the amount of fuel that would be required, how long they would have to conduct rocket burns to make uh, corrective maneuvers to to get into a proper orbit. So it was absolutely, the, the depth and breadth of it was really quite uh, interesting. and. NASA acknowledged this, uh, in 2001 there was a report compiled by the NASA Johnson Space Center and uh, Annie Platoff, a NASA official, said that, without a doubt, the most influential figure in the history of human Mars mission planning was Werner von Braun. And so this went on to inspire quite a bit of, uh, of thinking during the, the space age. In fact, by 1954, Collier's magazine um, they did this large spread called "Man Will Conquer Space Soon," and it featured um, von Braun's concepts there with a whole lot of very uh, very eye-catching art that showed spacecraft in orbit around Mars being assembled in orbit around Earth, uh, vehicles landing and rolling out on the surface of Mars and also the Moon. Yeah, this also became the basis for a series of uh, movies by Disney that uh, were about the very same thing. The future of spaceflight, basically, and really captured the spirit of the early space age and all of the fantastic dreaming that that was taking place at the time. At the same time, there were actual proposals for crewed missions to Mars, so... NASA and the Soviets both had their share of them, and they tended to, uh, to all be drafted uh, late 50s, uh, early 60s, right when uh, both space agencies were deep into planning how they were going to one-up each other. And so yeah, in addition to uh, all of their efforts to, to put uh, astronauts and cosmonauts into orbit and to send them to the moon, they were contemplating the next logical step beyond that, which of course is Mars. One proposal, one very interesting proposal, was Project Orion. And this was a um, this is a famous example of an interstellar um, project, which uh, called for what's known as nuclear pulse propulsion. And the idea is you build a large spacecraft that is holding just uh, hundreds or even thousands of nuclear devices inside. It drops these devices out the back and they're detonated and the force of that released in space it then creates a shockwave which the spacecraft absorbs through a rear mounted push plate and that will shove the spacecraft forward with every detonation it picks up more speed it accelerates further and the spacecraft designers they they did calculate that this this had the advantage of generating uh, incredible velocity over time but of course it was uh, the idea was very very expensive prohibitively so the spacecraft had to be gigantic getting into orbit was a major headache but it, the the idea still had potential it was thought for interplanetary missions you could build a smaller lighter more cost effective but still very expensive spacecraft and during this this point in time there was certainly no shortage of nuclear weapons being built so it seemed like a like a um, constructive use of them however the by 1963 uh, the uh, soviets and the u.s had agreed to the limited test ban treaty along with several other international signatories and that that put a ban on the testing of nuclear weapons in space so that put a permanent kibosh on project orion Yes, there are, there are some today who want to revitalize the idea and uh, evolve it somewhat, and they figure, yes, if we can assemble this beyond low-Earth orbit, then it will be legal. However, otherwise, NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center conducted a number of studies um, from 1962 onward, and they fell under the heading of Early Manned Planetary Interplanetary Road Trip Expeditions, or Empire, and... This envisioned using current technology to uh, achieve a, uh, a Mars mission plan there that would come after Apollo. So it would use the, the same three-stage Saturn V rockets that the Apollo program was, and it would send um, spacecraft and uh, crews and uh, a small payload to Mars on a series of uh, round trips, to, much like the Apollo mission was sending astronauts to the moon. And Following the success of the Apollo program in the early 70s, von Braun had a chance to work with this and update his uh, Mars project idea. And he said that if uh, the Saturn V rockets, if we could take the first stage of those rockets and equip them with a nuclear engine, which NASA had developed and tested, and it was known as the nuclear engine for rocket vehicle application, or Nerva. Then yes, these rockets would have the uh, the power and the velocity to to do a uh, a trans Mars injection. So they could break free of Earth, achieve escape velocity, and be powerful enough to break free of the Earth Moon system and head all the way to Mars. This proposal was passed over by the Nixon administration because in the wake of Apollo, there were um, there were budget concerns. There was a whole new environment to deal with geopolitically and the Russians had seeded the race to the moon so it was decided instead that they would go with the more cost-effective space shuttle program and in parallel the soviets had developed their own studies the mission architecture they created um, was overseen by the soviet uh, rocket specialist Mikhail Tikhonrovov and he did a series of studies on behalf of uh, the soviet space program he and his colleagues they developed a few different designs for a a crewed spacecraft that would carry cosmonauts to Mars, either on a three-year mission, which would land on the surface, or a 21-month flyby. The problem with these plans was, they were all based around the development of the N1 rocket, and that was the Soviets' answer to the Saturn V, basically, it was this massive three-stage rocket, very powerful, unfortunately it was never flown successfully. It blew up um, during uh, one test in particular on the landing pad and devastated uh, the the Baikonur launch site. Shortly thereafter, the N1 rocket was cancelled, much like uh, all efforts to send cosmonauts to the moon, because the Soviets were, were also facing a budget crunch and so they officially ceded the race to the moon to NASA, And started looking to uh, more cost-effective programs in the post-Apollo era as well. So it would be some time before ideas would be dusted off again. There was one very interesting uh, plan that had been uh, drafted by James Lovelock, but it uh, wasn't—it wasn't an official plan. Yeah, it was um, actually—it took the form of fiction. And James Lovelock, it should be noted, he is a famous NASA scientist. He helped develop climatological models for NASA um, based on Earth to aid in the study of Mars and other planetary environments. And this led him to the thing that he is perhaps best known for, which is the Gaia hypothesis. The idea that ecological systems on a planetary scale are all part of the same basic organism there they um, they are self-reinforcing self-correcting um, and if you mess with them you, you run the risk of throwing off the entire balance and so that, that had a profound impact on the environmental movement um, and he also wrote in 1984 he released a book called The Greening of Mars and that contained uh, his thoughts on space flights, space travel, the the next great leap for human space exploration, and all of his ecological thinking. And it was the first fictional account of how Mars could be settled and terraformed by human beings using then-current technology, and it was really quite fascinating. He basically said that it could be done by taking all the nuclear launchers that were never used, all the solid rocket boosters. Uh, equipping them first with payloads of chlorofluorocarbons, which were being phased out at the time, that way thickening the atmosphere of Mars, warming up the planet, and then crews would be sent in to, to live on the surface and do the crucial work of converting the atmosphere and, uh, and greening the surface. right? And it would all be overseen by the United Nations Environmental Programme. So yeah, that remains a very influential book, and it is one of the uh, most interesting accounts and treatises on on terraforming because it, of course, employs uh, the scientific method and argues how this could all be done using entirely known and uh, achievable methods. But it was it was told in sort of a science fiction format. And six years later, Robert Zubrin, the founder of the Mars Society and his colleague David Baker, they wrote a report for NASA called Mars Direct. They offered an expanded version of this argument there in a book they released six years later, and this proposal um, has gone on to influence all the uh, the current mission planning. They're either taking a page from it or they're offering uh, modified versions of it. Basically, Mars Direct was a proposal to send missions directly to Mars from Earth. They offered an architecture, mission architecture, which would be relatively low cost and would use uh, basically all of the NASA's existing infrastructure there to create n- a new series of heavy launch vehicles and spacecraft that could send the payloads and crew to Mars and they expanded on this further there in 1996 with a, a popular book called The Case for Mars. In that book, they not only spoke of how we could send missions to Mars today, not only that, but regular missions could be sent that would eventually lead to colonization. They even wrote about how an economy could be developed and how what the habitats would look like and how they would uh, need to evolve over time. And uh, a lot of these similar ideas can be seen in um, the Kim Stanley Robinson series. there. Red Mars, Green Mars, Blue Mars. It, it's got a lot of the same thinking there especially where the sort of uh, graduated approach to settlements is concerned, right? The first waves of uh, people to go in are scientists. They live in uh, habitation modules uh, that are on the surface. They then construct a subsurface habitat where more people can live and grow food and eventually building a large-scale radiation and abrasion-resistant domes on the surface and uh, yeah, using local resources to manufacture everything they need, and eventually even start um, exporting these things to Earth. So yeah, Zubrin and Baker proposed that to NASA, and at that point onward, NASA began um, looking into uh, ideas there for sending crews to Mars, and this included a five-year study known as the Mars Design Reference Mission this consisted of five overall um, conceptual design studies based on current technology and uh, yes it was very much based on the mars direct plan but it had modifications for the duration of missions the crew size and in addition of course they had uh, updated and uh, more detailed calculations for um, how to safeguard the health of the crew taking into account the transit times between Earth and Mars, and how much radiation they'd be exposed to in the meantime, um, and of course questions about how the long-term exposure to microgravity while in space plus low gravity on Mars would play a role. Uh, this This began to mature over time and a lot of new considerations were being brought in like can we build spacecraft that will go faster using nuclear engines? Solar electric propulsion and ion engines were also considered because uh, they're extremely fuel efficient and can lead to much lighter spacecraft. And also whether or not the um, the elements, the mission components like the rockets and the spacecraft, whether or not they were going to be expendable as they were during the Apollo era or reusable. So a lot was going on there at the time at NASA and developments that were happening in the meantime, like the creation of the ISS and reusability through the space shuttle program all of this were now leading to new designs and new concepts and so by the the mid-2000s things really began to come together there and, and next generation concepts were being developed so this brings us to the constellation program which was kicked off in 2005. the objectives of this was to create a new generation of heavy launch vehicles and spacecraft that uh, would be able to make the trip to Mars land and return in a way that was as cost-effective as possible and relied on uh, current technology, and so designs were produced for um, the Ares-1 and Ares-5 rockets, for the crew exploration vehicles it was called, and also for a lunar lander known as the Altair Lunar Surface Access Module. So. So this program bore some fruit, uh, which included the creation of the first Ares-1 rocket. And it was, the, um, it was the crew vehicle, so this long slender rocket known as the stick, and it would have the uh, crew exploration vehicle uh, integrated to the front of it. And they managed to conduct uh, a successful um, abort system test with the, uh, with the crew exploration vehicle. They even managed to launch uh, the first stage of an Ares-1 in uh, October of 2009, so the rocket did make a successful uncrewed test flight. However, uh, in 2009 the program was cancelled because of the massive economic downturn. The following year, NASA went back to the, the drawing board and began talking about, okay, let's let's do a long-term vision then that looks beyond just the uh, objectives of the constellation program and really looks to the next big step, going to Mars and how they were going to use the moon to get there. So this became known as the Journey to Mars or the Moon to Mars mission architecture which uh, NASA came back with and the Obama administration signed off on in 2010. Several ideas were rolled over from the constellation program uh, for example, the Ares-5 rocket, which was meant to send uh, just payloads, they decided well, let's, um, let's make this a, a launch system that can send both crews and payloads to space, the crew exploration vehicle, it evolved into the current Orion spacecraft, the heavy launch system that would send it to space, uh, it was renamed from Ares-5 to the Space Launch System or SLS. And so the idea now was we're going to use this, uh, this heavy booster, which consists of a big orange core stage with multiple powerful engines. Um, and we are going to pair it with two solid rocket boosters, which NASA still had around from the, uh, the space shuttle era. And this was now going to replace the space shuttle uh, launch system, which they were planning on retiring by 2011. The overall mission plan was now that we're going to use this rocket and this spacecraft, not just to the moon. We're not just going to do a a return to the moon with these. Uh, We are going to use these to establish all the necessary infrastructure for doing long-term missions to Mars and ones that are sustainable meaning that we can keep going back, and so the plan incorporated what was known at the time as the Deep Space Habitat, and the Earth Transfer Habitat, and these two have evolved into the Lunar Gateway, and the, uh, the Deep Space Transport, and the overall plan for going from the Moon to Mars. Uh, came down to three phases, and a total of 32 SLS launches that were planned for 2018 to the 2030s. The first phase, known as Earth Reliant, called for the development of the SLS and the Orion spacecraft, and as well as further ISS uh, studies involving the effects of radiation and microgravity on human physiology. And phase two, Proving Ground, that involved exploration missions where crews would be launched by the SLS and Orion, and uh, which would then, uh, between 2024 and 2028, they would deliver all the necessary parts for the lunar gateway, which would be in orbit around the moon, and then they would rendezvous with an asteroid that had been towed into uh, lunar orbit, and this was known as the Asteroid Redirect Mission. Um, and that was to give the crews experience with extra vehicular activity and basically be a dress rehearsal for eventual uh, crewed missions to Mars. So for phase three, known as the Earth-independent phase, that called for the continued use of robotic landers, rovers, and orbiters to uh, explore the surface of Mars, to scope out resources and uh, good landing sites and places for surface habitats in preparation for uh, crewed missions. Then by between 2028 and 2033, NASA would use the Lunar Gateway and the Deep Space Transport to send another uh, modular uh, space station to orbit around Mars, known as the Mars Base Camp. And similar to the Lunar Gateway, it would have a reusable lander that would carry crews to and from the surface. And so by 2033, once that was assembled and ready, that's when NASA would launch uh, astronaut crews to the lunar gateway, who would then take their Orion spacecraft uh, and mount it uh, onto the deep space transport, which would rely on solar electric propulsion to make the journey to Mars. And this would take about six to nine months, and they would happen every 26 months. And once the uh, the crews arrived around Mars, they would then yes integrate with the uh, The Mars base camp, take the reusable Mars lander down to conduct surface operations, build a habitat, and between 2033 and the early 2040s, this would facilitate uh, regular missions to Mars that would uh, initially be scientific in nature, but could eventually expand and become commercial, and would allow international partners to do that. However, uh, things sort of changed uh, around uh, 2017, 2018 there with uh, under the Trump administration. Now, initially, by 2016, NASA was getting a bit nervous because the Trump administration had had failed to meet with NASA to discuss uh, its future plans. And this is something uh, incoming administrations have done since, uh, well, since the Johnson administration, basically. Um, they have uh, they have met with NASA before taking office, or just shortly thereafter, and discussed what they wanted to do. this way, NASA had some idea of what the future held for them, and uh, they had some ideas to budgets and and so forth. There was a uh, some initiative was taken there. Transitional funding was made available. Um, Senator Ted Cruz and a handful of. Uh, Republicans uh, had drafted up a, a bill to uh, to keep NASA funded well into the uh, fiscal year 2017. They did the plan did change a little bit though. The asteroid redirect mission was dropped in favor of returning to the lunar surface by 2028. As soon as the lunar gateway was assembled and a crewed mission was sent there, they would be able to take the a reusable lunar lander down. As I said, they're both uh, all the space stations here that are that are proposed will have reusable landers. They would then take that down to the surface, and this would represent the first American astronauts on the moon since the Apollo era. And so this this plan carried over into 2017, at which point, at which point the uh, Vice President Mike Pence uh, finally announced what the administration's plans for space were and it was not yet named the Artemis program but the announcement that was made in 2017 was that the Trump administration would be prioritizing a return to the moon and so this really didn't represent any real changes but it did seem as though it was a, a shift from the policy of the Obama era possibly due to uh, uh, enmity between the outgoing president and and the new one um, In any case, though, it it still represented the same uh, mission architecture. It's just that Phase 1 and 2 were still a go, and Phase 3 had not been abandoned. It was just being de-emphasized. However, by 2019, things had changed. First, uh, Vice President Pence uh, announced that the timetable was being moved up. NASA was to land astronauts on the lunar surface by 2024 at the latest and he also indicated that if uh, this could not be done then shakeups would would be uh, called for. In other words, if uh, anyone tells us that we can't do it by then, uh, they're going to be fired and replaced by somebody else and that is exactly what happened. Several uh, veteran personnel were quietly demoted and others... uh, And shortly thereafter, uh, a name was given for the program, and that's where Artemis came from. So the plan at this point was that we are going to return to the moon, and that's going to happen by 2024, or bust, that we still plan on building the Lunar Gateway. Um, However, it was unclear if they they would be able to do that by 2024, and that uh, ultimately it had to be deprioritized as well. And with the lunar gateway now deprioritized, NASA needed to create a human landing system that could either be launched from the SLS, that could be integrated with the Orion spacecraft, because basically they needed to, the astronaut crews needed to go from the Orion spacecraft in orbit of the moon to the surface and back, because they had no uh, gateway and no reusable lander to use. And so that began the whole process of the Human Landing System uh, contracts, which SpaceX ultimately secured with their, uh, their Starship uh, redesign, uh, known as the Starship uh, HLS or the Lunar Starship. The idea now was that um, after testing and development of the SLS was complete, NASA would begin to uh, conduct test launches and uh, then they would uh, send a crew uh, around the moon on a circumlunar flight similar to what they did in the Apollo program and that Artemis III, which would take place in 2024, would be the one where astronauts return to the surface for the first time since Apollo and the Meanwhile SpaceX was contracted to launch the initial modules of the Lunar Gateway which would also launch in 2024 but would not be serviceable in time for Artemis 3. So ultimately the astronauts would be relying on SpaceX to provide the human landing system as well and the current mission architecture says that this would uh, launch separately um, to space while the SLS launches the um, Orion spacecraft with the four-person crew. That four-person crew was then going to rendezvous with the starship HLS in orbit around the moon, use it to land on the surface, uh, then use it to take off again, and, um, yes, I believe rendezvous again with the Orion spacecraft to make the journey home. So this may sound complicated, but because it is. Um, this whole shake-up really really kind of threw a wrench in, in NASA's uh, plans there in order to achieve all their objectives they've had to really outsource a lot of their key mission components to uh, the private sector and they've gone with SpaceX in pretty much all in all cases uh, since then, some positive news. NASA has announced that this this objective cannot be achieved with the Trump administration no longer in office. They have greater flexibility to to adjust their timelines. At this juncture, Artemis 3 has been pushed to 2025, and the Lunar Gateway is still on track to be launched in 2024. And as a, in the deep space transport, that remains to be seen, but that, that will come together in time. In terms of uh, the missions to Mars, yeah, things have changed somewhat in, in recent years because China, less uh, less than five years ago, in fact, they were still, it was still believed that they would wait between the 2040s and 2060s to send missions to Mars. They had sort of officially ceded Mars as, as Russia had as well in order to focus on lunar missions by the 2020s, 2030s. But China has also pushed up its timetable for Mars and said that they hope to launch during the exact same timeline. 2033, 2035, 2037, and beyond. And, of course, SpaceX is also planning on uh, mounting its own missions. For them, this comes down to Mars direct missions that would be accomplished with the Starship and Super Heavy launch system. That timetable on that, of course, is also tentative and and is being pushed back in accordance with Starship testing, but Musk still, based on his most recent statements, he still hopes that crewed missions to Mars will be a reality in this decade, and that with uh, the Starship factory and launch uh, tower uh, all running there at Boca Chica, or the SpaceX starport as it's now called that he'll be able to launch hundreds or even thousands of starships towards Mars, each one carrying 100 passengers or 100 megatons of cargo, thus establishing a permanent base there either early next decade or before this decade is out. It's an extremely ambitious plan, but that that's always been the nature of Musk and SpaceX. He's always been very ambitious and optimistic with his timelines. Other plans have also been floated for um, potential human colonization of Mars. And this included the uh, crowd-funded effort known as Mars One, which has since gone become defunct. Richard Branson has also talked about bringing people to Mars by the 2030s. Jeff Bezos has spoken more about uh, building colonies in space. But it's very clear that the commercial sector wants to get in on this big old Mars rush. And the European Space Agency also wants to, with the possible use of the Ariane 5 rocket, uh, they want to start sending crewed missions to Mars by the mid-2030s. And uh, Roscosmos is still talking about doing crewed missions to Mars by the 2040s to 2060s. And, of course, that will depend uh, very heavily on the state of uh, of international relations and whether or not Russia's space program is able to well, maintain amidst all the sanctions and the uh, budget crunch. So, having spoken about all the uh, the plans... There's, of course, always the question of the reasons, and this is where crewed missions to Mars, especially long-term colonization terraforming efforts, it produces, a, a, there's, there's always a resistance, a backlash to it, people saying that uh, this, this seems a waste of money, it's stealing focus from Earth, why are we doing it? As Robert Zubrin explained in early in our show here in that clip, it's that there are multiple reasons, and they include our humanity's expansion beyond the Earth-Moon system and the utilization of all the resources that, that exist between Earth and Mars and how that will usher in a new era of potentially post-scarcity and a whole new economic system. Also, the research. It would allow us to to conduct astrobiological studies that are unparalleled. Mars is the only other planet in the solar system where life is believed to have once had a a foothold. There still could be life there today in underground caches and that's something that that knowledge would be very beneficial. The development of these missions and all the necessary parts will have uh, immense benefits, immense commercial applications here at home. Apollo program. It it led to so many advances here on Earth in terms of medicine, in terms of uh, environmental controls, in terms of our knowledge about the natural environment, in terms of communications, in terms of uh, just everyday life. And it was because all the research financed by NASA and the U.S. government with taxpayer money, all the, the ideas that came from that were made available to the public for free through NASA spin-off. Again, we can expect uh, so much in the way of advancement here, too. But perhaps the best reason is because it represents a challenge. Much like uh, Kennedy had said about uh, the Apollo program, we do these things because they are hard, because they have a way of bringing out the best in us and, and fostering growth. Not just in terms of material well-being or scientific gains, but just culturally and as a species, we we find ourselves growing in response to the fact that we are able to do the very, very difficult things that uh, some say can't be done. Well, much of that is uh, a subject for other episodes and our and issues which I genuinely hope to explore. Thank you for listening. I'm Matt Williams. This has been Stories from Space. We hope you enjoyed
0: this episode of Stories from Space podcast with Matthew Williams. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share itspmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels.